millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and a warm welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo and it's so wonderful to have you with us for what is going to be, I can already tell, one of my favourite episodes of this podcast. Today I'm joined by two legends of the literary world who'll be going head to head in a war of the words a little later on. My first guest is the author of many novels, non-fiction books and stories for young adults too. In 1992, she won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel A Thousand Acres and has also received the Penn Centre USA Lifetime Achievement Award, but she doesn't look it. Jane Smiley, hello and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> I always think if you get a Lifetime Achievement Award, you know, you think, well... I'm still living the lifetime, you know. Um, but anyway, <laughs> we'll we'll get to that in a mo. Uh, our well, second... you know, if they're go on. I was just going to say it's a California organization, so <laughs> they don't expect you to be very interesting <laughs> at, when you get older. <laughs> well, we will we will make sure that we address that in this podcast. <laughs> uh, and to my second guest, who's a writer broadcaster, entertainer and poet whose collections include the works You Made Me Late Again and Up in the Attic. Many of her poems are in school textbooks across the world. In fact, I grew up on reading many of them and she has performed for Her Majesty the Queen not once, not twice, but three separate <laughs> times. She's recorded six incredibly popular series for my dad's favourite radio station, Radio 4, and is one of the very few guests who has appeared on Desert Island Discs more than once. I am, of course, talking about Powers MBE. Hello, welcome to you. Oh, hello, Joe. Thank you very much. Well, that's a very nice introduction. Well, it's an absolute pleasure and honour to have you both with us for this podcast. It really is. And... Uh, we are connecting um, California, I believe, Jane. Yes. With London, I believe, Pam. Well, I'm in a village called Maisie Hampton, which sounds like something out of the Archers. And it's, right. about, <laughs> it's about 70 miles out of London um, in uh, Gloucestershire. So we're not connecting. Well, I'm in London. I suppose we're connecting to me. But yes. So it's Gloucester, Gloucestershire, <laughs> London, California. That's pretty good, isn't it, for the old uh, That's an exotic blend, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Jane, how is that 
Californian sun this morning and how do we find you in this sort of weird and strange world that we're living in at the moment? Well, it's actually very sunny. Um, it's a little chilly at the moment, but I'm, I'm sure, I mean, sometimes the temperature goes up by 20 degrees in the course of the day, 20, <laughs> 25 degrees. So um, it, it, it looks beautiful out the window. We'll see what it's like later. Yeah. We, we could use some rain, though. I'm I'm sad about the rain. I'm pretty sure we could send you some. Oh, I wish. <laughs> um, I uh, love California, and I love the temperature there because I would be very happy living my life in shorts and a t-shirt and some flip-flops most of the time and I <laughs> and I always whenever I'm over there I'm just sort of in bliss that I don't have to think about what I'm wearing you just throw throw on a t-shirt and you're fine and then a lot of the Californians you know who who live there look at me and think oh, aren't you a little bit cold and I'm like nah <laughs> about five years ago I was down in Riverside which is in Southern California and I was walking behind four people a guy in shorts and flip-flops, a woman in a puffy jacket, me in a sweater, and somebody else in just a, a T-shirt. So, yeah, everybody disagrees about what the temperature is. <laughs> yes, they do, very much so. But but for most uh, people coming from the UK to California, we think it's hot all the time. Uh, and <laughs> Pam, how are you in your, uh, in your arches-like village? Everything oh. okay? Yes, actually, it's a very nice time of year. Um, we're just seeing the first uh, suggestions of spring. The snowdrops are out. The hawthorns starting to come out on the hedgerows. The daffodils are starting to come out. And it's got a wonderful um, feeling of something all ready to pounce, you know, that the spring's <laughs> getting all ready and the sap is rising and it's all going to be lovely and we'll come out of the gloom and, uh, and everything will be <laughs> bright and colourful so it's a really lovely time of year and I'm very interested in nature and um, I've got two ponds here and the newts have just come back into the ponds uh, they go off into Ooh. walls and crook and little nooks and crannies during the um, during the winter time and then at the right time of year they all go back into the pond and, and mate and lay eggs and such like and they've all just come back into the ponds now so it's a lovely time of year here in the Fantastic. archers. In the archers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we've got um, we've got a heron that keeps coming to visit our pond. Oh, uh, you won't have many newts then in that case. No, so I think I think maybe the newts are uh, are still hiding because he 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 uh, definitely visits on quite a regular occasion. <laughs> you need to put a section of drain pipe into your pond so that he they've got somewhere to scuttle into, so the heron's dagger like beak can't get them. Ah, uh, that's very good advice. Maybe we'll maybe we'll look at that. Yeah. Yeah, a section of drain pipe is what you need. A section of drain pipe, and then they've got somewhere they can get. Um, you know, they they're not vulnerable. Yeah, and it's 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 a weird one because we love watching the heron, you know, fly in and watching yeah. them sort of stalk around, mm. and yet we're also thinking, oh, don't eat everything. No. <laughs> They are extraordinary birds. My my father always said they were as light as a feather. If you actually picked one up, even though they're big gawky mm. birds, he said they are feather light. And I think the bones are hollow, aren't they? They're very, um, they're very light birds indeed. And those legs must weigh nothing because they're like little twigs, aren't they? Mm. 
That's fascinating. It is, isn't it? I could I could bore you all about Newt for some length of time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk we'll talk more about newts a little later on. Uh, <laughs> well, we could talk about geckos. We could talk about geckos. Yeah, I spent some time in Singapore, and that was the first time I heard the term gecko. And they were all over the ceilings and the walls then with their little sticky feet. <laughs> Yes, they're fascinating. I petted one about three or four months ago. It was walking across the fence. You know, that board that goes along yeah. and holds the fence up. And it paused, and I just sort of reached out and petted it on its back, and it kind of glanced up at me and then walked on. Oh. I thought, boy, you, you're wow. not afraid, are you? No, no, I like people who pat geckos. <laughs> well, I didn't know that we were going to be talking about nature quite so much and I'm sure we will continue to do so as well as talking about books and writing um what you've both been reading recently and of course uh, we'll do the book off uh, a little later on um first though Jane I, I want to talk to you about this new book that you recently published it's called The Strays of Paris it's your latest novel um it features a set of heartwarming friendships that develop on the streets of Paris so perhaps you could tell us just a little bit more about this story well it's it begins with a uh, three-year-old racehorse at um otoy race course who's just won a race and she happens to uh her excuse me the trailer has left taking four horses it's going to come back for her and the groom who's waiting with her has gone off to the bathroom and so she is looking out at the grass, and she's just so interested in it, the turf it is. And so she happens to press her chest against the door, and whoops, the door opens. And so she walks out, and she's drawn by the green grass, and then step by step, she ends up in the Place du Trocadero, which is on the uh, west side of the Seine, up the hill. Very beautiful spot. And it would go from there. And what what was it that drew you to write about Paris specifically and also to write sort of about these animals? Well, Paris in the book, Perestroika, is based on my own horse, uh, Perestroika, mm. who is a very curious horse. And she's just the sort of horse I can imagine doing something <laughs> like this. And I had been, it was in 2009, and I had been visiting an American woman who trains racehorses and, and ha actually has quite a good business um, in and around Paris. And then we had gone to the Place du Trocadero for some French onion soup. And I said to my husband, wow, wouldn't it be fun if the horse escaped or a horse escaped and came here? That would be really fun. So I added in a dog because, you know, she would need some kind of guidance. <laughs> and then bit by bit, it all sort of um, fell into place. And it was really a lot of fun to to write, I have to say. Yes, I can imagine it was, actually. I, I sort of got that sense from reading it that it probably was. I, I want to come back and talk about the fun you had with it and also the the sort of escapism of, of the book um, in just a moment. Pam, if I could come to you, though, to talk about Up in the Attic. Now, this is a collection published a few years ago now, 2019, um, but it, it's featuring 
on the World Book Night list for this year, which we'll come to in a moment. But for, for those that may not have got to this collection yet, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about it. Oh, yes, Joe. Well, Up in the Attic is my latest collection of gems. Um, <laughs> and it, cover, it covers all kinds of subjects, anything that... I thought would be fun to write about or would uh, strike a chord with people. So I've written lots about animals. It takes its title from uh, the title poem is Up in the Attic. And it's about going up into the attic and seeing all those things. Well, probably everybody's more efficient than I am, but I tend to hoard things. And so up in my attic, I've got my baby's pram and I've got... I've got all sorts of bits of furniture and old clocks and things and they've all got a story and it's not a very nice feeling. Although you are under the same roof as the rest of your home, which is warm and cosy and welcoming, up in the attic it can be very different, very chill and full of memories and old bits of carpet that you thought you'd use and you mm. never actually did. And and I've got my, da my daughter-in-law's um, wedding dress in a big box up there that she asked me to store and those things which um, are not entirely comfortable to look at. Yeah. And so, and then um, I suppose one of my favourites is um, I Am the Dog Who Bit the Ball, which is about one of my grandsons who, on his fifth, fifth, for his fifth birthday, he, um, he said he would like a red football. And uh, it, it actually took quite a lot of tracking down because you can buy footballs and you can buy a red ball, but you can't necessarily buy a combination of the two, you know, a proper football, which is red. And so in the end, I had to go and order one from a sports shop. And I always find those fairly terrifying because the assistants are always ripped. And um, anyway, I went and ordered them. Um, I went and ordered this football and I had to wait for it a little while and when it came you know I was so pleased and I gave it to my grandson for his birthday and I, he took it out on the lawn and kicked it and I have a small dog and the small dog ran after it jumped up bit it and immediately it deflated and was rendered absolutely useless and so um, that's the kind of thing that I I like to write about because I think it strikes a chord with other people and so um, I wrote the the poem I am the dog who bit the ball and he's uh, been sent indoors and he's in trouble <laughs> I guess, I'm guessing it's a Jack Russell Terrier absolutely Jane yes that's precisely <laughs> what that's, you're you're spot on that's exactly what she is we had and it's a female we had a Jack Russell Terrier who went between two slats in a fence, ran on a limb and killed a bird. Oh, dear. They're very mischievous, aren't they? They, <laughs> they are mischievous little dogs, but very lovable. Oh, I adored them. I know I adore mine. I, 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 she's my companion and little shadow. <laughs> Shall I give you a... Would you like me to read a little bit of I Am the Dog Who Bit the oh, Ball? Let's have a burst, yeah, please. Oh, please, okay. yeah. I am the dog who bit the ball and ruined the game of goals. I wasn't to know that balls don't go if you've added a couple of holes. The kids and dad, they all went mad. They sent me indoors, they did. The ball was new, a beautiful blue, and it cost them several quid. The shame, the shame, I ruined the game and made the family crabby. I jumped for it, I shook it a bit, and it went from hard to flabby. Bad dog. 
dog, they said. Go in your bed, and in disgrace I go. I offered a paw, but nobody saw. Nobody wanted to know. That's a little bit oh. of it. So you can see what a, what a tragic piece it is. <laughs> and what's lovely about your poems, Pam, is that they they are they channel something very British, and you find the funny in some very like small things. And yet, what you're saying about you know going up to the attic there is is universal and, and talking about a Jack Russell and I imagine that actually you know the Britishness transcends to a worldwide audience well it's interesting that Jane's little dog is just as mischievous as mine you know I, I do <laughs> I do like subjects with um with the universal appeal so I tend to write about children and pets and feeling things that make you feel embarrassed when you don't feel as good as everybody else and it's quite nice then because I can write about a situation in which I felt embarrassed or humiliated and then people say to me oh I felt just the same and it's nice it's mm. very nice yeah um, I want to come back and talk about well book night shortly Pam it's a, a celebration of reading that takes place every year and it's something that I absolutely love and I always try to champion as much as possible when when I can so we, we want to talk to you about that um, coming back to the strays of Paris Jane because when I read this book I had a I felt like it had a sort of fable like quality to it if that's the right description and I just wondered if that was sort of deliberate on on your part well I wouldn't say so because I don't think I had any intentions um, in, in terms of form. I think all I wanted to do was to play around with the animals, explore. I love Paris, so explore Paris. I think the West Side um, is really an interesting area. And so I just wanted to make the animals um, believable or at least plausible. Um, I wanted to, I had to include some people and it just sort of built itself. So I can't say that there's mm. um, a fable aspect to it, but it is true that um, I was prodded to put in some sort of bad guy at some point, and I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I didn't. I said life is the bad guy. Too bad, you know. All these all these <laughs> animals and people have their own issues and they have their own problems and. I'm not going to bring in somebody with a gun. So well, I'm so glad you didn't really, because yeah, so I am think I. we all need a bit of escapism <laughs> at the moment, don't we? And, and literature is a way to get it. Yes, I agree. I want to talk about what you've been reading recently. Um, we're talking about finding the time to read, and it's not always the first on everyone's list, but for many writers obviously reading is you know most most writers are huge readers and and we love nothing more than curling up with a book um and i love asking my guests what they've been reading recently and also whether you know there's anyone or any book that they'd like to to champion and just tell us about so um what about you pow have you been sort of delving into uh, books in the last few months? Absolutely, yes I have. In fact, it's a good thing you can't see me because I look very tired <laughs> because I sat up late last night to finish the book that um, I have been reading, which is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, um, which oh, yeah. I absolutely loved. It's such beautiful writing and it's about... Um, 
it's a fictional account of Shakespeare's son, Hamnet, and it really brings to life Stratford-on-Avon in the 1500s, what people did, what they ate, what they wore, what they thought about, um, what medicines they had and didn't have. And it was so rich. And uh, and I cried. I I had a good cry as well. So I felt as though I really got my (laughs) money's worth. And then it sounds yeah, like and it. then before that the um the book I read before that was The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abby Dare and that is a wonderful book as well. It gives you an insight into life in Nigeria if you're very poor and subject to those terrible traditions and uh, the way women are kept down and and generally treated so that mm. was fascinating I I know it's massively popular but I can only add my praise to all the reviews um I just loved it and the other one I read before that which I loved as much it po- possibly if not more was Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens because I'm very interested in, in nature and the wonderful story she's woven such a wonderful story against a background of natural history and all the kind of creatures that existed in those Louisiana swamps it's a wonderful invention and creation and I, I'm just awestruck that someone can write so beautifully what a what a great set of recommendations and do you know what not that it's about me but i um have read all those books and actually we were lucky enough to have two of those authors maggie o'farrell and abby deray on this very podcast in oh, the last really? series. yeah oh, so gosh you i i wholeheartedly agree with uh, your recommendations and yeah you can Go back and listen to those episodes anytime you like, Pat. I will, I will. Thank you. <laughs> and what about you, Jane? What have you been reading recently that you've enjoyed? Well, I teach uh, at the University of California at Riverside, and I've had two undergraduate classes for the past eight, ten, eight to nine weeks. So I've mostly been reading what I assigned. Mm. But um, one of the books that I assigned was The Fountain Overflows. So that was a reread for me. And it was interesting to see how my students responded to it. They found the language complex, but, um, but they were willing to get into it and they enjoyed it. Um, the one that one class read most recently was The, the Boy in the Field by Margot Livesey. And they quite liked that. They liked the way she showed the how the discovering the boy who's been stabbed in a field outside of Oxford changes all three of their lives in different ways. Yeah. Uh, they liked that. And the other one, um, the one that I'm reading right now, which is also for, and this is also a reread, but this is also for school, is... The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. And I, I think I read this maybe 10 years ago, but I'm, it's just so fascinating the way she explores these, the, these women in, uh, in their lives in China and then in San Francisco. And mm. she goes into such great detail. And it's, it's really fascinating. Wow. And the Fountain Overflows is the Rebecca West novel, is it? Mm. Yeah. 
Um, yes, I assume must... that everybody in the UK would know that. <laughs> well, honey, you, yes, I've I've made assumptions like that and been very wrong. So I just thought I'd double check. <laughs> Thank um, you. No, and there must be a great feeling of power that comes with you know being the lecturer and having you know being able to set the texts. That must feel great because you know you can each year go through your collection or you can think about books that you've enjoyed and go oh I fancy that one again well I like assigning the books and I like rereading them or reading new ones a new one that I read and assigned was um, leave the world behind by Ruman Alam and that is about a mysterious sort of end of the world uh, event seen through the eyes of people who don't know what's happening and he never tells you what's happening. So it's pretty scary. Um, but you know, you never know if the students are going to like them. So there's no sense of power about it. They get to say what they want and what they like. And sometimes they like odd ones and sometimes they like the same ones that you like. And I'm always interested in their opinions. Mm, how lovely to be guided through literature. I feel very envious of your students, Jane, because um, th there's so much out there and to be knowledgeably guided through and and alerted to things that perhaps you weren't aware of. I, I, I didn't really have a very good education. I mean, the teachers I I had did their best, but it wasn't a, much of a school, really. It was massively overcrowded just at the end of the war. And um, uh, some of our school was in an overcrowded old building and then some of it was in an old marine camp and some of it was in a displaced person's camp. It was a funny old education, really. And the idea of being um, guided through the great mass of books that's out there by somebody knowledgeable and kind and saying, try this and try that. And what do you think of the language in this? I feel filled with envy, really. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you to say. I think my step... The, the university that I work at is incredibly diverse. And so I make it a point to make the, the reading list very diverse. Yes, yeah. When I was growing up, we read mostly English books, books from the UK, um, with the occasional, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne or something like that, which I truly appreciate. And I thought was very formative for me. But at the same time, my students really need to read about their own cultures and they need to read authors that reflect some of their own ideas and their own views. And um, so I try to make the reading list as diverse as I can. How interesting. Well, I, in contrast, think I had a really great education um, in the sense that I was brought up reading Pam Ayres, so that's... That's how. Oh, I <laughs> oh, you, you old, you old flatterer, you. <laughs> well, you, thank um, you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, I was saying it for slight comic effect, but I do also mean it. Um, do, do you get something out of the rereads, Jane? You know, you said you these texts you read ten years ago, and do you, you find are you sort of a, cha a champion for the reread? Because I know so many people who don't do it because they think there's too many books in the world and why reread one? I really like rereads because you notice different things. Um, I think in The Fountain Overflows, 
this time I really noticed the that the point of view was from a young girl and therefore very limited. And the way that she perceived her parents fascinated me as a parent. Um, the, mm. I thought the father got off with not much, uh, I don't know, con condemnation by the daughter. I, I, I thought it was just chaotic and um, a good reflection of West's childhood. And I, I just liked it a lot. But it was different the last time than this time. Yeah, I, I've there are books I've reread. I, I would say I'm not a, a constant rereader, but there are books that I have enjoyed and go back to again and again, you know, and actually do get something out of. And that, interestingly, poetry is something that you can read and read again. And I think possibly because of the form and because that it's they're a bit shorter than obviously a novel. But um, you know, rereading a poem is. It's quite commonplace, I think, isn't it, Pam? Um, so, but, but sorry, Joe, what's the question again? Sorry, I went off on a bit of a mental tangent there because I, I was thinking Don't about worry. books that have made a big impact on me. And one that I didn't mention to you before was one called No Friend But The Mountain by Beirouz Bouchani. And it was about a man um, mm. uh, who was trying to get... He's now in New Zealand. I think he's lecturing at one of the universities in New Zealand, which is wonderful because he he wrote this um, book about being a refugee and trying to get into Australia and they put him on that terrible island in a, in a camp and the detail of what it was like and the un, uh, unbearable boredom and all these men mm -hmm. crowded in together. Um, no Friend But The Mountains uh, by Beirouz Bouchani is another one I would like to mention because it was it completely changed my view of the people who were trying to, you know, who, who were trying to get a decent life and a job and a, a bring up their family safely and mm. how pitiful it was for him. Yeah, so that was a, a stunning book, I thought. Anyway, sorry, what was your question, Joe? I, I was drifting off on a bit of a mental tangent there. Uh, ask <laughs> no, me the question worry. again, sorry. I was just talking, I was just reflecting on the rereading thing of books and, th and, and how actually in poetry it's quite commonplace, isn't it, to reread and that for them to be performed. And I think that's because the form lends itself to that. Well, I'm a performance poet. And before COVID, I was doing lots of performances around the country. In fact, when COVID really clamped down, I was in Australia, I was doing performances. Well, I'd done one performance in Sydney. And I had performances in Adelaide and Perth, and they were all cancelled. And we just got home as quickly as we could. So when it comes to rereading, I have to reread mine a lot because I've got to learn them. You know, I, I don't want to read to people. I can't bear that mm. I, because if I if I don't know the poems, then I have to put my glasses on and get my book out and stand at some lectern, you know, and, you, and I like to, to kind of I like to be a performer and I like to act the poems, you know, and if I'm reading the dog who bit the ball, I want to be the dog and I want to look ashamed, you know, I want to put my, my best efforts into acting the thing. And so when it comes to rereading, I do a lot of that so that I know I've got them in my mind before I go out and perform them to an audience. As far as rereading novels and um, other books are concerned, 
I am of the school that thinks there are so many thousands out there that perhaps I shouldn't, instead of rereading one um, that I've already read, I should go on and read a fresh one and <laughs> so try and cover some of the ground. Well, that's true. I think it's split. Yeah, I think it's a dilemma there. I mean, one of the ones I was going to mention is I Tituba by Marisa Condé, which I bought three or four years ago and was just sitting around my office, and which is a mess of books. And I picked it up and I started reading it and I just thought it was incredible. It's from the point of view of um, the... A, an enslaved woman during the Salem witch trials who was uh, put in jail. And it's completely believable and fascinating. And that's one that I just had lying around and it, it was wonderful. What's it called again, Jane? It sounds mm. amazing. I'd like to read it. What's it called? I. You, you do. You want to read it. I. I. Tituba. T I T U B A. Black Witch of Salem. Thank you very much. I tituba. Thank you. I shall look it's it. Good, this. It's like, a, it's like a sort of global book club, <laughs> isn't it? I know. <laughs> I'll send you a copy if you send me your Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> oh, no. I, I couldn't part with her, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> you were talking, Pamela, there about being a performance poet, and obviously before... This, this horrible pandemic that's sort of ruined things for everyone and has been very sad, but which we're hopefully seeing a sort of end to. You would have been touring, as you mentioned. And um, one thing that I think we have in common is that we've both been on the Queen Mary 2. Yes. Yes. Quite a ship, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the QM, Queen Mary 2. Yes, um, it is. It's, yeah, it's huge, isn't it? It's a great big thing. Well, I'd never been um, attracted to a cruise, let's say, and I went, I was very lucky enough to go for work, and I actually went with um, the late, great Sir Terry Wogan on, oh, yes. on the one of its early voyages the, the of the Queen Mary 2, and I got lost in the thing, Pam. Yes, I, I can believe it. My way. <laughs> <laughs> it was vast. I didn't know what yeah. I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, have you been on one of these big liners, Jane? These are these sort of massive cruise ships that have two swimming pools and five restaurants. Well, I have been on some cruises. I'm not sure I've been on. I haven't one been on one that crosses the Atlantic or anything. The best one I went on was one around the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, so we went to um, all kinds of interesting uh, spots including Venice, of course, um, but maybe di the, the weirdest one was the Palace of Diocletian in Split, um, where I could, you know, I'm very tall, I'm six foot two, and I could barely fit in the hallways. It was, <laughs> it was really weird. Oh. <laughs> but it was a fascinating oh. uh, thing, and basically... The cruise ship was your hotel, and then you spent all the rest of the days exploring these um, sites. Mm. I uh, the, I qu quite like the the idea of cruising, where you just get on and you find a nice, comfortable room, and then you unpack your case, and that is it. And you don't 
run the risk of leaving things behind as I once did in Las Vegas. I was doing some filming. <laughs> I was doing some filming. Uh, we were traveling across um, the well, I don't quite know why I was in Las Vegas, to be honest. We had done a <laughs> film. Does? We had made a film. <laughs> no, I think my husband was desperate to see it, you know, and go and uh, look at it. And uh, I had a lovely gold fountain pen that um, my husband had given me. And um, and I left it behind in a hotel room in Las Vegas, which was heartbreaking. Um and so I, I like cruising because you only unpack once and then you everything comes to you. <clears throat> I like that. And um, for me, it's much more of a challenge to work on a cruise ship. I mean, I like it because I like the travel, but it's not as if you are um, appearing in a theatre where people can look at the various things that are on and think, well, I like that. I'll go to that and I won't go to that. Mm. If you're on a ship... Uh, the, the audience who come are not necessarily fans. They, you know, they just come because you happen to be on that night, and and so it's much more of a challenge. But uh, it's an interesting challenge, and it usually it usually goes goes well because everybody likes to laugh, don't they? I'm in the business. Yes. I'm in the business of of hoping to make people laugh, and um, and when you are successful and you see an audience throw itself forward and a great roar of laughter. It's so satisfying uh, to have done it from, you know, to have um, completed the arc, if you like, that you thought of the idea, you wrote something, you learned it, you went out and put it across as best you could and everybody fell about laughing. It's, it's thrilling. <laughs> and you, you may like the fact that you can just unpack once on a cruise ship. I like the fact that when you come back from the bar and you're flopping from side to side against the walls, you can <laughs> blame it on the fact that you're on the waves and that you haven't had several <laughs> glasses of gin. <laughs> well, I wouldn't know. I'm a very clean living person, you see. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Well, it's time now for the book off. And this is where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you absolutely love, that you think me and everyone listening should read. Um, You're each going to get three minutes. You don't have to use the three minutes if you don't want to, but I'll be putting you on a timer. And when we reach those three minutes, even if you're still talking, I'll either be ringing you out on the school bell or I'll be (laughs) honking you with the horn. So, oh, how rude. Uh, how very rude. It's incredibly rude of me. And I have yeah. definitely got into trouble before on this podcast by sort of <laughs> cutting people off in their prime. But um, Jane, would you like to go first or second for the book off? Um, I would like to go second. I need inspiration. Oh, I say <laughs> she's going to see she's going to see what you're made of, Pam. <laughs> I'm not sure I can provide any, Jane. I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) Which means, Pam, you get to decide if you would like the the school bell or the horn. Oh, the school bell, please. The the horn sounds a bit coarse. (laughs) Yes, it is a business. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm putting three minutes on the clock for you, Pam. And just before we start the timer, um, what book are you putting up for us? Uh, The book I would like to talk about is An English Pastoral by James Rebanks, because I love it. Fantastic. Well, there's three minutes on the clock then. Uh, We will not interrupt you. It's over to you to tell us about An English Pastoral. I met James Rebanks, who wrote An English Pastoral and A Shepherd's Life, uh, among lots of other things, um, two years ago. And I met him when I was speaking in the august surroundings of the National, the, the Royal Geographical Society at an anniversary celebration for an organisation called the Countryside Restoration Trust. And their aim in life is to farm and produce food, but to do it alongside nature so that you... you um, you farm and you produce food in the way that you have to on, on a farm, but that you live alongside nature. And um, one of their properties is called Lark Rise Farm. And I went there and it's very beautiful and it's full of hares and birds and the hedges have been allowed to grow up and they're full of crab apples and hazelnuts and blackberries and sloes and rose hips and all kinds of natural food. So what they do, I greatly believe in. And, um, James Rebank's story, well, it's not really a story, his book, An English Pastoral, is um, about three generations of his family who farm a fell farm in the Lake District. And it's about what went wrong, really. Uh, He describes his early experience of farming with his grandfather about having little fields and how each field um, grew a different crop and how they looked after the land and how it was full of life and I love the book particularly because I I experienced the same thing when I was a child growing up in the village of Stamford in the Vale it was full of life there were um, voles, water voles in all of the rivers and you could go out and get a basket of mushrooms or a basket of blackberries and you could go fishing and buy little and you could catch trout and you could catch crayfish it was seething with crayfish and um, there was just food everywhere and you there was a wood near us which grew bluebells and hazelnuts and it's just a wonderful place that smelled gorgeous and then suddenly 
It all started to disappear. The bluebell wood was uprooted. I went there one day and the whole thing had been uprooted and all their roots, all their silver roots were up in the air and the wood had gone and all the little fields started to be ploughed up. The little field which, which was full of flowers that we used to gather for my mother was suddenly ploughed and growing a crop and everything changed and in James Rebank's book he explains why and how it happened and how pesticides and fertilizers were introduced to farmers as the answer that they would no longer be uh, subject to the vagaries of the weather and all the pests that came to bother oh blow I was just getting going there <laughs> You know what's so awful about doing this uh, this book off is that some people, some authors come on and they wrap it up in two two and a half minutes and they sort of do a bit of a mic drop out there like yeah I've said all I need to say, and then there are others like you Pam who are just you know you start getting into it and I can tell that you've got so much more to say and yet I'm hovering over the timer <laughs> thinking oh, I'm about to ring out Pam Ayers. <laughs> Does it? Do you think it gave them a sort of gist of the book though what it was um why I like it? I do it? and we will we are we will talk a little bit about it in, in okay. three minutes time we're going to let Jane do her pitch and then we'll come back and talk about both of them so you have a breather okay uh, I think that was that was really great um and i'm going to put three minutes back on the clock for you jane before i start it what book are you putting forward for the book off i am going to talk about the year of lear by jane shapiro which is a non-fiction uh book about uh 1605 to 1606 in uh london and thereabouts well i've put three minutes back on the clock then uh it's over to you uninterrupted to tell us about the year of lear when I was growing up, we read a lot of Shakespeare plays, but he, the Shakespeare, the man never came into it because there, there wasn't much information about him or at least nothing that they told us. So when I read this book, I was totally amazed. Uh, Shapiro is a Shakespeare scholar at Columbia University. And what he does is he starts with the uh, summer of 1605 and goes through uh, 1606 to the first production of King Lear in, I think it's just after Christmas in, in 1606. And he talks about <clears throat> all the events that happened in that year and a half, including a plague, including a rumored assassination of the king, which turned out not to be true, um, including, oh, just so many things with regard to what Shakespeare would have been doing. Uh, maybe I have several favorite parts, but maybe my first, my favorite part <clears throat> is at the very beginning where he starts you at the corner of the two streets where the house Shakespeare lived in was. And then he has you follow Shakespeare down the streets to where he is going to buy a copy of this old play uh, about Lear one that he's going to repurpose. And since I repurposed King Lear for a thousand acres, that obviously was interesting to me. But he just follows um, the political, the well, let's put it this way. He follows the personal implications of all the political events that are taking place. He also gives us whatever we seem to know about or seem to have found out about the people that Shakespeare knew 
about the um, about the the players, his fellow players, about what they said, about what they thought. And one of my first uh, or one of my favorite episodes or chapters is it sort of toward the middle of the book. It's called Equivocation. And he does say, um, though the scene in the second part of Henry VI would be the first time Shakespeare soaks explicitly employs what would come to be called equivocation. It would be far from the only instance of this verbal trick to appear in his plays. One of the great pleasures afforded by his works is watching his many lovers, rivals, servants, avengers, and villains equivocate, sometimes playfully, sometimes in the most cunning and destructive ways imaginable. And he links that to um, all of the political chaos that was taking place and how everybody had to give their opinions in tricky ways. Oh, no, that's, that's me cutting you off as well, Dan. <laughs> and I know there was so much more. At least I got the word tricky in. You did. And I thought I got I got a sense of these books very much from both of those pictures. And thank you both for them. Um, Pam, I have to say, you know, the, the moment you started talking about Lark Rise Farm, I think it's called I Just Wanted to Go There. My goodness. Oh, it's wonderful. Sounding yeah. place. And I, what I didn't get in in my three minutes was the fact that it it matters to us all. It's not just about mm. farming as an isolated thing. The fact that we look after our ecosystems and the fact that we we care for the the life around us is so important to us in so many ways and and it has been allowed to uh what i didn't tell you which i did want to include was that in about 1962 or 63 when um ddt had just been introduced as a mm. kind of a seed protector um when i was going to work in, on the bus i saw this big field and it was littered with dead birds um it, there were hundreds and hundreds of birds that must have eaten the seed treated with ddt yeah. and died a terrible death and that first alerted me to the fact that something was terribly wrong and james rebanks in his book goes through the the glory days if you like of mixed farming and then how it went wrong how it was rather seduced by chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides and now this wonderful movement to try and uh, not turn the clock back but to to redress the balance and to look after our ecosystems well i should say that I should say that when I was writing A Thousand Acres, the, the inspiration for setting King Lear on that farm was driving, was driving through the north, the north central part of Iowa, which had been a swamp and, and which they had, uh, immigrants from Norfolk had created these wells that drained the water and um, out of the plain. Uh, blah 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 drain the water out of the soil but by the 1980s there was a terrible pesticide crisis and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about too because the pesticides were going down into the drinking water and they were poisoning people and nobody would admit it 
So yes, I think this is a this is an issue that should be compelling to all of us, but. I know it's just I mean when you think about photosynthesis the fact that there's all these little plants have tiny pores in their petals and stems and and leaves and they they breathe in the carbon dioxide and they breathe out oxygen I mean it's so miraculous yeah. and why wouldn't we look after them all <laughs> so true isn't it yeah it sounds like a fascinating book it really does Pam and so does the year of Lear if I'm honest Jane a very different book of course but um James Shapiro sounds like he knows what he's talking about and I love this idea that he's just taken a sort of you know 12 to 18 month period of, of Shakespeare's life um and the way you described you know him him as the reader following Shakespeare down the street to to, to find that play and repurpose it just really sort of gave me a sense of of what the whole book is about and interesting that Pam mentioned the Maggie O'Farrell book the wonderful Hamlet yeah, so yes yeah. that that is interesting isn't it that we both um uh, should find that so so interesting of all the hundreds of books <laughs> that are out there that we should both have found um one that features Shakespeare the man but I do think there is a sort of such a fascination with him and I know that there's been many books about him and there has been sort of a lot written and films and everything but Jane the the, the sort of appeal of Shakespeare and the interest in him never seems to go away well that's true but when I came back and was looking at the year of Lear which I read a few years ago I realized that the world that um, Shapiro is depicting is quite similar to the crisis that we're having now with um, yeah. all these, especially in the U.S., but with all these political fights and um, these um, terrible possibilities and then yeah. the return of the plague and so this this illness and how, it, yeah. um, the, how they have to close the Shakespeare Theater in London and go on the road so their income becomes a little iffy. I mean, it just struck me when I looked mm. back at it again. I said, wow, things just keep coming and coming and coming. <laughs> That's so true. I hadn't thought about it in that sort of context of being... No, really. it's... Yeah. How interesting. Well, I have to say, I loved both of those pictures. I'm sorry that I cut you both off. <laughs> and I'm... We forgive you. We forgive you. <laughs> I'm honestly very, very keen to read both of them. Um, but I've got to pick one to take home on behalf of of the listeners and that's the game um both very strong but I, I think just by a by a little inch i'm going to take an english pastoral home <laughs> I'm not i think it's i think it's i think it's also um and and jane jane sort of helped me out by saying how important it is that we're all you know talking about this and and the ecosystem is so important and we should know about it and learn a bit more about it. I think it is a very relevant book and I would well, I'm really gonna take be very keen to read too. it. Oh, well, Great. thank you both very much. I think <laughs> I think you're both being very gracious. I, I will just say that the thing that stuck, stayed, in my, stayed out in my mind when I went to speak at, the, um, uh, at this um, celebration of the Countryside Restoration Trust was a man called Derek Gow. And Derek Gow is very knowledgeable about wildlife and and ecosystems and he stood on the stage and he said 
People talk about ecosystems in this country, he said, and there are none. He said there are just a few shreds like cobwebs blowing in the wind. Mm -hmm. And that image was so sad and disturbing to me, the cobwebs blowing in the wind. So I'm very honoured that you have chosen um, the book (laughs) that I nominated. Thank you both very much. Well, you're very welcome. And I've also written The Year of Lear now on this ever-growing list, Jane, of books that I have yeah. to order and read. So um, thanks thanks very much for bringing it to our attention. It's extremely readable. It's kind of like, it's just, you zip, just zip through it. It's great. It sounds great. Yeah, it really does. Um, two fab recommendations um, and another two fab recommendations for you listening. The Strays of Paris by Jane Smiley, which is out now. It's published by Mantle. And Up in the Attic by Pam Ayres, which is also out now. It's published by Ebri, And it's part of the World Book Night list. So remember to find out more about this year's World Book Night, which is happening on the 23rd of April. Visit worldbooknight.org. And... Uh, I think if you, I think from the 23rd, you can download a free digital copy of Stories to Make You Smile, which is a specially commissioned book of short stories from a load of best selling authors. So that's something free that you can download and enjoy at home, which is pretty amazing. And that's all thanks to the reading agency who do such such amazing work. And I, I said earlier, Pam, I always want to sort of champion World Book Night. I want to make sure people know how how much the reading agency do for you know literature and for getting books into the hands of readers um, and yeah it's it, you're in pretty good company as well this year <laughs> well absolutely yes i'm very honored i i always think <clears throat> we had a teacher at our school called miss edmonds and i was nuts about ponies like many many young girls and um, we had a poor little library. It was on one shelf. Um, but <laughs> we were all invited to go round when this library was opened. And she gave me a book called Wish for a Pony by Monica Edwards. And um, I often think what would have happened if she hadn't given me that book because I absolutely loved it. And then I devoured mm. everything I could find by Monica Edwards. And, and then she gave me the Just William books. And, oh. you know, that, lit- that little library was so important. And it just showed me what worlds you could step into yeah yeah it really it really it really does and i think hopefully there'll be some stories like yours on the 23rd of april of people putting a book in someone's hand and that starting a reading journey for them as well um i hope so it's been an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast i wish we could have done it in person obviously and i wish we could talk for hours hours more but i will let you go um jane and Pam, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.